It's time for Real Ag Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. Radio and realagriculture.com is your home for insight and analysis of the issues that are impacting your farm business. Let's get real and get connected with Real Ag Radio. Hello and welcome to Real Ag Radio here on this Tuesday. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and today's show is brought to you by New Farm. Check out newfarm.com for all their products. All right, today's show, well, we didn't have an agronomic Monday, so we've got a bit of an agronomic flair for today's show. Uh, But of course, we're going to still hit up a couple other things, like Kelvin Hepner is going to join me at the back end of the show for some news, some news items that uh, we didn't have time to get to on the issues panel, but there's a few key things we need to discuss. But looking forward to today's show. So as I mentioned, New Farm uh, is sponsoring today's show. We've got a product Spotlight with Tyler Gullen later in the show. Uh, before we get to that, though, I did pull a clip from last week's episode of The Agronomist to talk about nitrogen management on wheat, when we need it, how much, all of those sorts of good things. Uh, and then later in the show, we're going to get a full update on BT resistant European corn borer, why that is showing up in cornfields and what we can do about it potentially. Um, and, and yes, as I mentioned, of course, Kevin going to join me for the news. I did want to just quickly weigh in, uh, got some great feedback from last week. So, uh, hosting the show for two weeks always makes it really interesting to have these sort of daily conversations as people pop in and tell me what they liked or, or want to hear more of on the show, got some great feedback on the interest rate question. So if you caught last Thursday's show uh, with the Farmer Rapid Fire, we did talk about, you know, if you have to take out a loan right now, uh, a long-term loan, do you go fixed or variable? And if you go variable, uh, for how long or what term? So got some great feedback on, you know, it's not just about the the interest rate, it's about the asset too. So that discussion of, you know, if it's land and buildings, it really, that's a long-term loan that should be a long-term amortization and a longer-term lock-in. Whereas if you're going for your shorter-term loans, think shorter term. I think that's a great way to look at it. So if you would like to send your feedback on that topic or any other, you can call that feedback line 1-855-776-6147. Or of course, you can zip me an email lsmith at realagriculture.com. Or you can find us across social media at Real Agriculture. All right, let's take a quick break and I'll be back with more brought to you by New Farm right after this. At Brett Young, we focus on what's real. It's how we became Canada's largest independent seed company. That's why we're asking a real farmer, what do you think of BY6217TF, Brett Young's TrueFlex Canola Hot? What's that? <clears throat> BY6217TF, Brett Young's TrueFlex Canola Hybrid with Pod Defender Shatter Reduction Technology and Defender Rated Club Root and Black Leg Resistance. Uh, good yield, yeah. Probably choose it again. Thanks, Chris. Talk to your Brett Young retailer today to see for yourself. Brett Young, distinct by design dedication. Watching the sunset over your crop is one of life's simple pleasures. The anticipation of it all. We know that feeling. Introducing our new Airflex NXT, our best honeybee header yet with the closest cut ever. Light, fast reacting, and infinitely adjustable. More yield, less time, and work. Airflex NXT focuses on the future. What drives your next? Visit honeybee.ca or contact your nearest honeybee dealer. 
Does your end stabilizer contain an active ingredient load high enough to be agronomically effective? If not, it could be costing you time and money. If you're putting down a nitrogen stabilizer, put your trust in Coke Agronomic Services. Solutions like SuperU, Tribune, and Anvil. Each delivers high active ingredient concentrations that low-rate products just can't match. Compare how imitator products stack up to agronomically effective solutions at defendyourn.ca. Welcome back to Real Ag Radio here on Rural Radio Channel 147. This show is brought to you by New Farm. Head on over to newfarm.ca for their full product lineup. All right, I am your host, Lindsay Smith. And for this segment, we're going to throw it all the way back to last Monday night, uh, where I host a little show called The Agronomists. It happens every Monday, except holiday Mondays, 8 p.m. Eastern. It goes live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and realagriculture.com slash agronomists. And uh, last week's show was all about nitrogen on wheat. And we do really have two crops in Canada. We have a winter crop in Ontario and plenty of points east. And we really have a spring crop in Western Canada. And so last week's show, we had Peter Wee, Pete Johnson on. We had Brunel Sabrin out of Manitoba to talk about form, placement, rate and protecting against losses. Let's take a listen. Um, so here we are heading into the fall. So, you know, and we talk about this at Real Agriculture when we're doing something like the wheat school and we're planning it. We talk about that really we have two wheat crops, right? We have our our fall seeded Ontario winter wheat crop. And then we have for the most part a spring crop in the West. Yes, the West has some fall seeded and yes, Ontario has some spring seeded, but that's usually how things fall. So, Yes, we have two crops, but there are a lot of similarities and then there are some key differences. And so tonight I want to unpack some of those. And so I open it up, of course, to everyone in the comments as well. If you've got your questions about either winter wheat or spring wheat, they're all welcome here. And we're going to talk specifically nitrogen management. Um, there are some other things that are going to play a role in here too. Um, Brunel, I'm going to start out west, largely a spring crop. Are we still seeing most of the N up front? And if so... Are we talking fall applied or how has that maybe changed? Uh, I think it's more of a mix depending on the conditions. Um, in the Red River Valley where I am, we're still largely a fall applied crop as long as we've got a nice open fall to do it. Generally, you know, some of it is economics as much as it is agronomics. Uh, we are doing research just to see, you know, as it's still truth to the fact that we're better, you know, the, all the, the research says that we're better off more efficient spring applied nitrogen. But like we said, there's always exceptions to every rules, but we are seeing more and more like as the prices of fertilizer climb and the price of commodities, we're seeing a lot more producers wanting to look at that. Okay. Now does it pay to top dress? Does it pay to variable rate? Does it pay like the economics have completely changed the game again from what it was even 10 years ago. So we're seeing a lot more farmers open to the idea of, putting down a base rate, whether it's in the fall or the spring ahead of seeding to make sure that we have our bases covers, but covered, but then managing our risk by leaving a bit of a window open that we can adjust our nitrogen. Once we see what the, how the crop comes out of the ground and, you know, that first month, month and a half, we see what, what kind of crop we're facing. And because we're on a floodplain here too, you know, they're, they're, I think that's where our advantage is to variable rating some nitrogen is we don't know if it's going to be our ridges 
versus our depressions that are going to be yielding depending on the weather. This year tends to be the depressions that are higher yielding because we didn't get rain, but on a wet year, it's complete opposite. The opposite. Yeah. We're talking two feet, three feet difference in elevation on the mile in some cases. That's for us, that's lots. That's, that's huge for now. Huge. Yeah. Pete, don't make fun. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's it's a valley. It's flat. Leave it alone. Um, yeah. Okay. I could have I could have thirty feet difference in elevation in in I don't know two hundred feet or whatever. Yes. So yeah. three feet yeah, in a mean, mile. Yeah. Growing up when I was out west of Alberta, I said, "What do they mean, Saskatchewan's flat?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, Brunel, so I, I have a question, if I could. So what what's your base rate in the fall? You said growers are going towards more of a base rate in the fall, and then and I love it. Give yourself some manage op, management opportunity in the spring because wheat responds to management, and you know, I if you put all the nitrogen on in the fall, you've spent all your money. And then if you get the super wet spring, you may well lose some of that nitrogen. And like there's all those different things. So so what is the percentage of the nitrogen put on in the fall? Are are you looking at half? Are you looking at three quarters? What's what's the base rate? Uh, I think we're looking higher than half just because the falls can be or the spring, sorry, can be such a big question mark. So I like to see at least 75 to 80 percent of our nitrogen needs up front ahead of putting the crop in the ground because because we're on heavy clay soils we're always running the risk of if it's too wet number one we can't get in to put to top dress on a timely fashion or if it gets to be later in the season we have such a short growing window that we don't have time to make adjustments so we need that rain later to to get the fertilizer in the ground like if we're looking at that six seven leaf stage as the time that we're going to top dress so to me, having at least 75 or 80% of your nitrogen needs up front is, is a better risk management than trying to go half and then relying on being able to get a, a 60 pounds or so on later. Normally, we're targeting anywhere from a uh, low end 120 to on the high end 150 pounds of available nitrogen between what was on the soil test and what we're applying as fertilizer. We do have a lot of denitrification here too because of the, the heavy clay soils okay. and the rain. So yeah. we're, we tend to be higher nitrogen or we're, we're putting on more nitrogen than other areas for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, and even Western Canada is kind of an interesting, an interesting conundrum because you're in the Red River Valley, which gets quite a bit of rain and you still worry about the spring because of, of denitrification and flooding and, and timing and all those things. But if you're in the pallets or triangle, if you're, you know, oh, yeah, uh, for sure. like it, it's, again, it's different there because, because putting nitrogen on in the spring there, the real risk is that it sits on the surface and never gets a rainfall. And, yeah. and so you, I, it's, it's sort of a, a real balancing act between how that can come together. Meanwhile, for you guys, you get too much rain and, and you get more nitrogen loss, then that's that's not where you want to be either. You'd rather actually put that on in the spring, even if it's a bit later, probably, as mm-hmm. long as it got in the ground, just because you don't want to, we mm-hmm. don't want to, you know, cause that, that environmental concern or that economic loss. I mean, really cool. I, and I'm really waiting, Lindsay. I don't know if, mm-hmm. if other listeners have been uh, following Daniel uh, Konopelski, I think it is, from Saskatchewan. He had the winter wheat planted in September and the hard red spring planted October the 31st. Right. Yes. And his, so his winter wheat, 
yielded 58 bushels per acre on, I think he said, 58 or 68 millimeters of rainfall. And his dormant seeded spring wheat, like he was just waiting on the weather to harvest it, but it was way better than anything he seeded in the spring because he was too wet in the spring and couldn't get it in timely. So, uh, yeah, just lots of lots of things to t- to think about so that, as we go down. Yeah, so that road. that Pete, that's like not even ultra early seeding. That's like ultra ultra early <laughs> seeding yeah. of taking a spring variety, putting it in into cold ground, putting it into cold storage over the winter, and then letting it it'll do its thing as soon as as possible so you're right Pete. we need to we need to follow along because it's it's a fascinating sort of thought process but someone's actually out there doing it so we need to keep tabs on that as well i'm also going to point out here because i haven't seen jim hale on the chat but he usually will point out it doesn't matter what you do if it doesn't rain um so i feel like i need to state that so i'm going to do that for farmer jim out of lancer saskatchewan it 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 hasn't rained in a while um and kara would like to know that she would would prefer you not to call the West a conundrum, Pete. She, it hurts her feelings. Okay. <laughs> All right. So carrying on, uh, we've already, though, identified several of the things that we do have to take into consideration, which, yes, is timing, but also is the conditions that you're dealing with and trying to manage that risk against what is more likely to happen in your area on your soil, right? So is the higher risk you can't get on or and, and you need it there up front or is the higher risk that you're going to lose it and putting it on ahead is going to end up just costing you? Now, Pete, when we're looking at Ontario's wheat crop, we're mostly talking about a fall seeded crop. You don't want to see N in the fall. And why is that? Let's just get that one out of the way. <laughs> so... Our wheat doesn't grow through the winter. And we've done, we did, Shane and I did a, a number of trials about fall applied nitrogen. When ESN first came out, the thought process was, well, we could put some ESN on in the fall and that would get us away from having to try to get out early in the spring when it's too wet to run or whatever. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, Lindsay, it just doesn't work. Any nitrogen we put on in the fall, of it was a loss. And so if we put on 50 pounds of nitrogen in the fall, we could do the exact same thing with 25 pounds of nitrogen in the spring. And fall nitrogen never increased yield. Why would I spend money on nitrogen that never increases yield? So fall nitrogen under Ontario conditions just doesn't work. If you're in the UK, if you're in New Zealand, because there the winters are warmer, and the crop grows and tillers almost all through all winter. That's a totally different story. So they talk about, you know, 30 or 50 pounds of fall nitrogen because they want to support those eight, nine, 10 tillers per plant, or at least five tillers per plant. Yeah, Ontario, Michigan, uh, Ohio really just doesn't make any sense. And, and it's an environmental concern. So why would we, yeah. number one, throw money away? not get any more yield and harm the environment. Like uh, that, that's three strikes you're out. Fall nitrogen doesn't work in the Great Lakes Basin. Mm-hmm. So, and then to sort of contrast that with where Brunel is in Manitoba, and actually uh, Dr. Dave is reading my mind, which is perhaps terrifying. Sorry about your luck there. Uh, but if so, if, you know, in Ontario, we consider that we could be losing 50% of that. And what would the estimate be for the Red River Valley, Brunel? So if you're putting on that, 75, 80% base rate in the fall. What are you, what sort of risk of loss do you sort of consider is there 
what have you seen as evidence of what's still there in the spring? Uh, this isn't replicated or it's more anecdotal, I guess, but through 25 years of experience consulting in the valley, if we get early water, early, I guess I'm thinking flood, which isn't really the scenario, but if we get an early spring thaw, generally we're pretty good. If we get a late season flood where we've got water sitting on the fields in late April, early May, then we're that's where we tend to lose a lot of nitrogen to denit- denitrification. We don't have any kind of leaching, like especially where I am, we're on 200 feet of clay, so it's it's not going anywhere. Not going down, no. That's really not. <laughs> where we lose our nitrogen, it goes up. So yeah. if we have conditions where soils are saturated in the spring and it's already 25 to 30 degrees Celsius for daytime highs, we've seen that where we've lost probably, like you said, 50% of our nitrogen. But mm-hmm. typically our water, snow melt thaws early enough, and then by the time the fields do thaw out where we're in good shape. We don't tend, don't seem to lose a whole lot of nitrogen or else we wouldn't be doing that practice anymore. Yeah. Yep, for sure. Um, and that is everyone, the tale of both sides of the Canadian shield. Amen. Okay. Um, so there, there, go ahead, Pete. Well, no. So I, 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 it really does depend if you put the nitrogen on right at freeze up, and it stays cold all the way to till it thaws out, and then it thaws out and doesn't come in wet. Then your losses are are probably pretty pretty minimal. Eh, you'd worry a little bit about the nice nitrous oxide emissions because with all that nitrate pool that could be there in the spring, that's that's often that transformation. That's as as the, the soil thaws out. That's when we get that big boost of nitrous oxide that we don't want from a greenhouse gas emission standpoint. But other than that, your losses probably aren't all that bad. Uh, The challenge is when you get like last year, not this spring, but a year ago, man, I think you guys had a really wet spring and I think you lost a ton of nitrogen. And, and then you just say, well, man, like, why did I like, isn't there a better way? And uh, the challenge is to figure out what that better way is. Mm-hmm. Well, we're starting Absolutely. to play with. I, I, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Brunel. I was just going to say we're starting to play with an, like additives to the anhydrous, and like you mentioned, how you apply it, when you apply it. Typically in the fall here, we're doing anhydrous, so we're putting it down. You know what they consider deep banding, a good three to four inches deep minimum. Uh, I'd be more worried about shallow applied That's nitrogen. That's deep here, Pete. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's deep here. You're closing the slot. Carrying on. Drive on. As uh, says. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, it's, yeah. but yeah, the time of year that you're applying it. and If we sure. applied anhydrous four inches deep, she'd all be in the air. Like it just wouldn't. Like 28% we could do four inches deep. Anhydrous, if we're not six to eight, it just all gases off. Anyway, just it's a difference that's, in areas. And, and clearly yeah. that's not happening to you, Brunel, or you, no. you would be putting it deeper. <laughs> All right. And with that, thank you to Pete. Thank you to Brunel. That show is a ton of fun. As I mentioned, check it out. Monday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, uh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you might be at that time. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Tyler Gullen with New Farm right after this. Proven Seed is at home in your soil. With the widest seed portfolio in Western Canada, 
our seed is developed and tested on and for your local acres. Our hybrids and varieties are tested by hundreds of growers, so we know how our seed will perform in your local conditions. Better returns start with seed that belongs where it's planted, and this seed belongs here. Secure your seed today at your local Nutrien Ag Solutions, or visit provenseed.ca to learn more. What's next for your fields? At Pioneer, delivering industry-leading genetics drives everything we do. From the scientists in the lab to our local teams with boots on the ground, we are determined to get there first. Developing top-performing products, proven in more growing conditions than ever before. Pioneer. What's next happens here. Visit pioneer.com slash Canada to learn more. Introducing the Arion 600 Series Tractor by Kloss, where versatility meets productivity head-on, because you've got jobs to do. Mowing, tedding, raking, baling, loading, filling, tilling, cleaning, spreading, hauling, feeding. This is multi-purpose reimagined to do the work for you. It's more than just power. The Arion 600 Tractor gets it done. to Real Egg Radio. It's time for today's product spotlight and joining me on the line, Tyler Gillen. He's the technical services manager for Western Prairies for New Farm. Tyler, welcome here. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. It is early September. It is time. It is time as harvest wraps up to talk about what we can do in the fall to save us some time in the spring. Number one, what's on our list? Yeah, for sure. With uh, you know, harvest wrapping up, probably earlier than normal in a lot of parts of the prairie is that, you know, that fall spraying could really be a great time management tool to really get that, that great start for next spring. And, you know, in particular, if you can spray a soil residual product this fall, that's, you know, going to get that residual weed control next spring. That's a really nice option. So, you know, a couple examples of this would be uh, Valterra or Fierce herbicides. Uh, they both provide up to eight weeks of residual control next spring to control those tough weeds you have, you know, if it's kochia, lamb's quarters, things like that, to, to really control them right as they emerge in the spring to help preserve that moisture and those, those nutrients in your soil. Uh, so that Valterra and Fierce are also really nice options uh, for fall because you can apply them with a, just a regular sprayer. You know, you don't need some extra equipment like a Valmar or something like that to apply them, uh, and you don't incorporate them. So it's a really nice option to really get that through single pass for fall spraying. Uh, and they do have a lot of, of, you know, cropping flexibility for next spring when you fall apply. So, you know, if your crop plans do change over the winter, as they tend to do, you know, you aren't stuck to that, that single crop on that acre next year. Mm-hmm. Always a consideration. Sometimes you're right. Planning ahead can sometimes create some headaches if we have to do some last minute changes. So always good to think about the flexibility you might have. Now, you did mention a few of the, the benefits, of course, the one pass system, but, but why fall versus spring? What, what other benefits might we get from sort of making this a fall pass? Mm, right. Yeah. So there are a few, you know, quite a few benefits to applying these in the fall. Uh, you know, one of the biggest factors that comes to mind for Valterra or Fierce, you know, to perform well, they do need that moisture to activate them in the soil to, to start to control those weeds. And, you know, we've really seen the past couple of years that that good spring rainfall just really isn't guaranteed. You know, there's parts of the prairies this year didn't really get that rainfall until well into June. So, you know, that spring application may not have got that activation. 
but by applying them in the fall, you could take advantage of that, uh, that, that snow melt in the spring to get that activation instead of the rain uh, and really start to control those weeds right away in the spring, uh, right as those weeds you know, themselves germinate the snow melt. So that just means that more of that moisture is going to stay in your fields, your crops, which is really important in some of these dry years like we've been seeing. Um, and, you know, another benefit of that fall application uh, of a Valterra or a Fierce is it's just a really nice resistance management tool. It's, it's a new herbicide timing. Uh, and it kind of lets you hit those weeds at a different stage and with some unique herbicide groups that, you know, you would apply in the fall safely before crops. And, but they're, you know, different herbicide groups than you'd use for an in-crop application. So you can really get, you know, multiple modes of action on that acre uh, and, you know, really get that residual control of those weeds early in the spring, help keep those weed populations down and, and help keep those weeds in kind of an ideal size, an ideal window of control to really help maximize your in-crop applications next year. So, yeah, so I think those fall benefits really come down to that time management piece and just the ease of application, you know, ensuring that herbicide gets activated with the snow belt and then just that resistance management tool in your toughest weeds. All very important things. Now, let's say I wrap up harvest is there such thing as going on too early, too late? Is there an ideal application window for these products? Mm, yeah, so, you know, I'm sure as people finish up harvest, there's a lot of farmers just chomping the bit to get out, uh, you know, get everything sprayed and put away. Uh, but we do recommend waiting to apply those products once the soil temperature is consistently below that 10 degrees Celsius point, so, but, you know, before freeze up. And the reason that you kind of want to apply in that timing is that all of a sudden you get, you know, a fall rain or some snow, uh, the microbes in the soil could start to break down those soil residual products, which is going to reduce the length of control you get in that spring. But once that soil does hit that 10 degrees Celsius, the microbe breakdown really starts to slow down. So, you know, if you do get some of those rainfalls, it won't start to break down that product this fall, and you are going to get that longer residual in the spring, the, you know, the longest residual possible. Um, you know, I should point out, too, these products are meant to control germinating weeds next spring. So if you do have some weeds growing this fall that you want to, you know, get control of when you're spraying, you can always throw in, you know, glyphosate or a blackhawk herbicide uh, with either Belterra or Fierce to help control those weed escapes this fall. Just really start next spring with the cleanest possible fields. Uh, we do love tank mixes. I also love how 10 degrees in the spring is warm, but 10 degrees in the fall is cool. Um, so... Isn't that just how it is? Uh, all right. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. Where can uh, producers find more information about Falterra and Fierce? Yeah, you can always reach out to your local retail or you can go to newfarm.ca slash fall apply. That's fall apply, all one word. Or give us a call at 1-800-868-5444. All right, Tyler, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll be back with more Real Ag Radio right after this. Where do you buy your corn and soybean seed from? If you're a Mazex Seeds customer, the answer is other Canadian farmers. With one of the largest pre-commercial testing programs in Canada aimed at meeting local needs, Mazex offers benchmark performance in corn hybrids and soybean varieties from a company owned by Canadian farmers. Ask your Mazex dealer about the best products field by field for your farm or visit mazex.com today. The Advancing Women Conference, the National Leadership Conference for Women in Ag, is celebrating 10 years of bringing women in ag together. 
Whether you're a producer, student, entrepreneur, representative of Grower Association, or corporate agribusiness, invest in yourself in Niagara Falls on November 19th, 20th, and 21st. Visit advancingwomenconference.ca for more information and to register. to Real Egg Radio here on this Tuesday, September 5th. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and today's show is brought to you by New Farm and their pre-emergent soil active herbicides, Valterra and Fierce. Get ahead of hard-to-kill weeds. Spray this fall for up to eight weeks of extended weed control next spring. Find out more at newfarm.ca. All right, as promised, we're going to have ourselves a little discussion on corn borer and why this pest is making a comeback in corn growing regions somewhat as a surprise. So we're going to head now to a corn school episode with Bern Tobin and Jocelyn Smith. Hi, I'm Bernard Tobin. Welcome to the corn school. Today I'm at Southwest Diagnostic Days, Ridgetown College, University of Guelph, catching up with Jocelyn Smith from the university. Jocelyn, how's it going? Pretty good, thanks, Bert. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Um, I want to talk about European corn borer. Now, Tracy Bowdy, Omafra's entomologist, was at this presentation yesterday and said, this topic has not been on this agenda since 1997. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought we had this bug beat, but it's made a comeback. What's happening? Yeah, it's true. The European corn borer control story with BT corn has been one of the biggest successes we've had with transgenic corn. And it was 1996 when these products first came to the market. And here we are 25-ish years later, and it's been, we haven't had any cases of resistance in in the world, you know, where all these BT crops are grown, which is primarily North America and a couple spots in Europe. Um, but until, unfortunately, we found our first case of BT resistance with this pest in 2018 in Nova Scotia, of all places. Now, talk about resistance. Um, 2018, you said, but that's spreading across the country, right? Well... It's it may be spreading somewhat already. Yes, we've we've since we found that first um, that first resistance case around Truro, Nova Scotia, and it was to the Cry1F protein in, uh, that's expressed in some BT corn plants. Uh, commonly, we were calling it uh, Herculex One. That was the trait the trade name for that trait. That was our initial detection. And since we found that, we really ramped up our monitoring for resistance for corn borer across Canada. And we've since picked up uh, some other resistant populations near Montreal, Quebec, and one near Carmen, Manitoba as well. So I think there's more maybe out there than we thought, but there, there are some circumstances that might have contributed to why those places are are where we're finding them. Let's talk about resistance and why we're seeing it. What's happening there with the traits no longer being effective? Right. So, yes, when we got this call in 2018, I went out to that area in the fall, around the beginning of September, and I went into four or five different Cry1F fields, though they were only expressing that one protein, that one BT protein, and I saw anywhere from 30 to 70% of the plants in those fields with corn borers in them, which we have never seen before. I mean, the only time you see corn borers in a corn plant is when it's non-BT, ever since BT corn came around. Um, Anyway, so we saw that much injury at that time. We brought those, uh, we collected insects from those fields, brought them back here to the Ridgetown campus, and we have a lab where we can rear them out and do different um, diagnostic bioassays with them, exposing them to different concentrations of these BT proteins. And we found that 
those ones from Nova Scotia are in that Truro area, and also one that we picked up over in uh, the Annapolis Valley, were all highly resistant to Cry1F. Mm. So um, we've since been following up and testing them against the other proteins as well. So there are four pro- proteins that work against European corn borer. Cry1AB is the oldest one that first came on the scene in 1996, and then Cry1F was the second one. I'd say late 90s. And then um, Monsanto at the time came out with a a third and fourth that were always stuck together called Cry1A.105 and Cry2AB2. And uh, since we've picked up all of these, or we increased our monitoring, now we're starting to see some problems with the other proteins as well. So that's what happens with resistance. Hey, tell me, I mean, obviously you mentioned Eastern Canada. Um, moving into Quebec, and you've, we've heard cases in Manitoba as well. I'm not hearing Ontario or the big corn states yes. in the U.S. Why not? That's true. I, our hypothesis as to why this might have happened in these areas um, has to do with the fact that in, in Ontario and maybe you know eastern Ontario and southern Quebec, we've been more similar in, in our you know, growing region to the Corn Belt in the U.S. So we've been getting a lot more options in terms of corn hybrids. And we went to uh, pyramids across the board where you have like hybrids that express at least two, maybe three of those different proteins in the same plant. But I think in those smaller short season markets like the Maritimes region and Manitoba, they were not getting the same kind of options. And corn hybrids maybe getting some of the older genetics that they were still planting a lot of these single traits for a lot longer than the rest of us were. And that's possibly what's contributed to this problem. We also don't know how much refuge was being planted out there. I mean, you know, in theory, they should have had, when you have a single trait, you should still have a 20% structured refuge. But we know how much everyone loves doing that. And so we don't know how much that really was happening. No way to say one way or the other if it was there or not. But maybe that contributed to it. And then the last factor here is that we unfortunately never got a, an idea of the baseline susceptibility of the corn borer populations out east to these proteins, where we focused our efforts for monitoring for resistance in where we thought the greatest selection yeah. pressure would be, the big corn re- growing regions, right? So we kind of neglected these areas, and maybe there was a little more to start with. Right. But anyway, it's, it's developed there now. So let's talk about um, how fast this could develop and spread, and with the fact that, as you said uh, in your presentation yesterday, it, a new protein may be 8 to 10 years away. Yeah, that's right. So with European corn borers, they move a lot, right? The adult is a moth. They, they, uh, they do overwinter in the corn stalks, way down low on the corn plant, but in the spring, they fly out of the field and they look for um, grassy areas where the mating happens, and then they go lay their eggs in a different field. So it could spread, and, and those moths can fly up to 40 kilometers in one generation. And in some areas, we have two generations per year. So there's potential there for this to spread, unfortunately, fairly right. quickly. So let's talk about uh, what farmers and you know and, and agronomists can be doing um, in that meantime. Uh, what's on the top of the list? I know Peter Johnson, uh, the wheat specialist, loves rotation and would love to see more growers growing wheat and expanding their rotations. Yeah, well, that wouldn't hurt in this case, probably, because, I mean, like I said, crop just initial or, you know, looking at a a small region of crop rotation within a field isn't probably going to make a huge difference because these moths move around so much. Hopefully we don't get into a scenario where the traits are all failing in a region and we have to tell people you shouldn't be growing corn here for a while to knock these corn borer populations back. I hope we don't have to get to that point. Um, But we're, we're encouraging growers right now to be really looking for this 
um, we're teaching them again today at Diagnostic Days what corn borers look like, the, all the different stages, because uh, a lot of the young people in agriculture have never even seen them in their career, right? Because we've had BT corns uh, do so well. So we're teaching them about that, um, how to scout for them. We're increasing our um, monitoring using pheromone traps for the moss and trying to learn the timing of things that happen in different parts of Canada where we might not have known so much about it. Um, and we're also thinking about maybe other things that they can do to control corn borers the old school way, not relying on the BT technology. If there are resistance issues in an area, we're really going to encourage um, stock destruction, like destroying that corn stubble in the fall, because we know those corn borers are really down low in the plant. They get under the combine head and they can survive over winter. But if you get really low and pulverize those corn stalks, that would ho hopefully kill a lot of them. Yeah. Insecticides are not an, an uh, not an awesome option with corn borer because they they uh, once they their uh, eggs are laid on the leaves they go into the midrib and into the plant really quickly they're a borer they don't feed a lot on the leaf tissue they want to be inside the stalk so timing insecticides is difficult and we may consider uh, biological control as well that's another mm -hmm. option that they do a lot of that in excuse me in Quebec for sweet corn there are some parasitic wasps that we could release possibly that could help. Um, you know, reduce the population. Right. So, Well, Jocelyn, hey, a fascinating story, great research, great insights, and as I say, a story that we will be monitoring and following for, for years ahead. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time for to join us on Corn School. You're very welcome. Glad you came. All right, big thanks to Byrne and to Jocelyn for that report. We're going to take a quick break, and after that, Kelvin Hepner here with Real Agriculture is going to join me to tackle some of the big news stories uh, happening this week as we kick off the week. Of course, today is brought to you by New Farm. Head on over to newfarm.ca for more. If I asked you, what's the most important tool on your farm? you'd probably think of tractors, trucks, and implements first. But it's actually something much bigger than that. Your soil is the most important equipment you own. The real question is, are you doing enough to keep it running at peak performance? Nutrient Smart Nutrition MAP plus MST is engineered with patented micronized sulfur technology to refuel your soil for maximum yields. Learn how to tune up your soil at smartnutritionmst.com. Introducing the all-new Zerion 12 Series Tractor by Kloss. Redesigned from the ground up to redefine the high-capacity four-wheel drive market with 653 max horsepower, industry-leading hydraulic flow, a silky smooth CVT, a powerful TerraTrack undercarriage, and a quiet, comfortable cab with 20% more legroom. More than just power. The all-new Zerion by Kloss. Welcome back to Real Ag Radio here on this Tuesday. I am your host, Lindsay Smith. And yes, today's show brought to you by New Farm. Head over to newfarm.ca. Okay, joining me on the line, Kelvin Hepner. It's time for some news. How are you, Kelvin? Doing well here, Lindsay. We had a, a bit of rain this morning, and so uh, we're not in the field combining. We uh, moved into canola yesterday and uh, had, a, had a good day yesterday, but uh, we'll take a, a break today and catch up on uh, some of the things happening around the world here on the news. Mm hmm. Just quickly, it is lava hot here. So I'm glad you got some rain because it was lava hot there. Yeah, we actually we, we had our hottest day of the year on uh, on Saturday, I believe it was 36.7 or something like that is what our thermometer showed degrees Celsius. So 
Uh, yeah, it's been one of uh, the summer has been kind of one aspect that's been unique is our hottest days were in May, June and September, not necessarily in July and mm-hmm. August, but very fortunately strange. the nights right. are still, it's, uh, are, what's your overnight low? Is it, uh, is it warm overnight as well? That with our animals, that's always the, the kicker if it's hot. Yeah. Too. Ours too. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it was 19, I think overnight. So okay. not, not very super cool. cool, but our, no. And our humidity is just like through the roof. It's kind of ridiculous. So, uh, it's very sticky and gross and, Anyway, we are moving into, though, my very favorite time of year here in Ontario, which is rapidly approaching, which is fall. And October here is beautiful. So I'm just reminding myself of that. Anyway. Okay. Yes, we did. We did promise some news, mostly because, uh, of course, Kevin, you did join me Friday for the issues panel. We know there was a, a bit of a flub on the show, but it did uh, run yesterday. So hopefully everybody got up to date. But there were a few stories that we didn't have time to get to. And I thought, so why not uh, also do a new segment here on Tuesday show? So Let's start, though, here in Ontario, because it's one that we've talked about on and off, but there's been uh, several different uh, things that have happened on the Greenbelt fiasco in Toronto. So we did see the housing minister, Steve Clark, did resign. We had seen, uh, of course, the one staff member had resigned just after the Auditor General came out with her scathing report. Um, But what's the latest here? So we've got a, a housing minister that's resigned, but we've also got potentially an RCMP investigation going on. What the heck is happening? Yeah, there's a lot of different moving parts here around the, the green belt. And some of this is driven by just the political pressure right now. Uh, the premier Doug Ford this morning announced that uh, there's going to be a reevaluation of all the, the sites in the green belt land swap as part of a, an overarching review of the entire green belt. So when the, the green belt concept was implemented, uh, the Liberal government in Ontario at the time actually included a mandate that it be reviewed at least every 10 years. And so it sounds like this upcoming review that Ford is now going to uh, push ahead, or the Ford government's going to push ahead with an overall review of the, the Green Belt, and, and that's going to include a reevaluation of these lands that uh, were selected through a process that uh, the Integrity Commissioner and, and others have said was rushed and flawed and potentially uh well there's there's uh politics and potentially even uh, to the degree of corruption potentially uh, there, there's some smoke around this you could say when it comes to uh, what's happened with this uh, this land that has uh, has been set aside and and now has development value for uh, for these developers who uh, who have had connections with the Ford government not just any, but it's, we're talking like $8.3 billion. Also, there's someone named Mr. X involved. Like, it really does have all the makings of a movie, but this is real life, people. That's, Mr. Uh, X, and one of his employees' name yeah. is Phoenix Kiss. And right. <laughs> if you like see a what? picture of him, uh, it, it's exactly what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Like, I almost feel like we're being punked, but not yeah. quite. So anyway, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll be following that along. Who knows? Perhaps with this 10-year review, they might turn the whole green belt concept on its head. So we might be having a very different conversation in a couple of weeks. Who knows? Uh, all right, let's look further afield because of course what happens uh, in places like China and India have a huge impact on 
a trade dependent nation like Canada, we had talked about on this show not long ago how exciting it was that Canada and India were planning to sit down to have a whole bunch of trade talks. And that soured last week. So what happened? Yeah, we don't, it's, it's kind of confusing. Uh, India's envoy to Canada, India's high commissioner who lives in Ottawa, uh, told BNN Bloomberg late last week that uh, the Canadian government has tapped the brakes on trade negotiations. And this is something that uh, is a kind of a major twist in, in this saga as uh, Canada and India have had intense trade negotiations over the last year and a half, roughly. So Canada and India actually have been in trade talks since going back to 2010. But in around 2017, the Liberal government basically abandoned plans and, and didn't uh, things went quiet. In March 2022, since then, I believe both countries have had 10 negotiating rounds since March of 2022. And now all of a sudden, uh, the Canadian government has apparently said, okay, we're not moving ahead at this point. And we haven't heard anything from the Canadian government on this, just India's, uh, basically India's ambassador, their high commissioner in in Ottawa, saying that uh, uh, Canada has tapped the brakes and sought a pause on on the talks. And this is uh, in the with the backdrop of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Trade Minister Mary Ng are in the Indo-Pacific region this week. They are in Indonesia today, headed to uh, Singapore uh, later in the week. And then uh, the big G20 leaders meeting is happening in India at the end of the week. And, and so uh, there was some expectation. And our sources in the, the Canadian government, specifically in Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, for the last number of months have been really hyping uh, the potential and optimism of a, a deal with India, a high-level deal. It was going to be just kind of an early preliminary type of deal, but they were hoping to have something signed before the end of 2023, before the end of this calendar year, which we said, well, that looks real unlikely in terms of being able to negotiate something with India. Of course, India is quite uh, protectionist and, and or can be when, it won, when it's uh, convenient for the government politically. And uh, negotiations would seem to be quite tricky, but they were in the officials in the Canadian government were optimistic just a few weeks ago. And, and here it sounds like there's been a major turn here with the Canadian government according. And again, this is according to India's uh, envoy here in Canada saying that uh, the Canadian government has told them they want to put a pause on the talks for now. Which just makes no sense to me. But it is, of course, as you said, it's coming from the Indian side. Perhaps the Canadian story is somewhat different. Um, but that Trudeau and Ng are uh, headed that way, at least for the G20 meetings coming up. Uh, we, of course do have an agriculture office not far uh, of course in the area anyway that you know was much hyped of of all the trade deals that may or or the relationship building that's going to happen so this one just i don't know it just doesn't seem to make sense to me so i suppose we'll see of course we know that you know our our pulse industry is uh you know would love more access to to india for sure uh, and that has been an on again off again relationship depending on what india wants to do so just bit mind-blowing, really. Um, let's talk economy. We do have some economic news on a few different fronts. Uh, one that caught my eye uh, last week, you know times are, are bad when the banks downsize slightly. So RBC did say that it planned to trim jobs. Is this Is this a really bad news story or just one of those, hey, it's going to happen? Well, we've seen, well, it's part of the 
I would say the economic part of this cycle where we're in right now in, in uh, the economy, we, we've seen all the major banks release their quarterly earnings reports over the last couple of weeks, and uh, a fair number of them uh, came in below expectations. We talked about it on, on Friday, how uh, uh, they're increasing their loan loss provisions, which is the amount of money they set aside to cover mortgages and, and loans that have the potential to go bad. So the, the banks have been upping uh, the amount of money that they are expecting to basically the an indication that they're expecting more people to default on on loans so that's not good for banks bottom lines and yeah we saw rbc announce that it's uh, it's planning to uh, trim some some jobs and uh, this of course if we're looking at uh, in anticipation of a recession and signs of entering a recession we saw a gdp in canada on the second quarter from statscan that number on friday the canadian economy actually shrunk 0.2 uh, percent in the quarter on an annualized rate and another requirement for meeting that definition of a recession often has to do with increasing unemployment and if banks are laying off people and uh, we've seen tech companies laying off people uh, there's still lots of places where uh, you can't find enough employees and there's way more openings than there are people, but uh, uh, this is maybe uh, one sign of some softening happening here. Mm-hmm. There's so many ways we could go with this. Do, do we talk more about the job side? Do we talk more about the ag tech side? Because, of course, there's a few things happening sort of behind the scenes on ag tech that would uh, that are perhaps a bit alarming, but I don't know if we have time. So let's We'll see if we get there, but stats can, because you mentioned it, um, yes, we did talk about GDP numbers on Friday, um, but there was also an article in the Globe and Mail that says that StatsCan has actually underestimated non-permanent residents by as much as a million people. Why would that matter? Uh, as far as the economy is concerned well if we have if we think there's 40 million people in canada but there's actually a million more than what we thought that is a major problem when adding to the fire when it comes to the housing crisis the, the shortage of housing healthcare, all these different places if uh, statscan is underestimating the number of people that actually rely on uh, on services and live in canada uh that in this includes foreign students and, and this report or this data is actually coming from a couple of economists including uh, Benjamin Tal at CIBC, speaking of the banks, uh, he and how his findings have been echoed by a, a former federal economist who who worked for the government, and they say that their actual population count is larger than what StatsCan is saying. And so, when we look at metrics such as per capita GDP, which is the best proxy that there is for basically standard of living of Canadians, our per capita GDP, when you look at overall GDP numbers, has been stagnant, has been quite flat going back to 2018. And that's using the StatsCan numbers that are likely undercounting the number of people. So on a per capita basis, GDP is looking even uh, more ugly. And so that's, uh, yeah, that's when it comes to any government services, if there's more people using it than what uh, what we thought, that would explain some of the the pressure and stress that uh, people are finding when it comes to housing, the housing market and that type of thing. Yeah, well, and and just, you know, thinking about my province alone, um, there's certainly been huge discrepancies in sort of, you know, how much housing is available for new Canadians, for people, for students. Um, Certainly, there's many stories right now circulating about, you know, college students that thought they'd find space, can't find one. So, 
you know, a million people is a lot. It's so two and a half it, it percent. would not surprise me. It, it means that, that it would mean that, well, so if, on a, assuming just back in the napkin math here, Canada had passed the 40 million mark, according to StatsCan earlier this summer in terms of population. And if we're out by 1 million, that's, that's like two and a half, between two and 3%. That we're out yeah. in, and that will be concentrated in certain pockets of the country, uh, yeah. as you mentioned, where there are schools and where a lot of these foreign students are, are living or, and under this non-permanent residence category. That's uh, yeah, that's that explains some of the pain that people are feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. We're just about out of time here. So I do want to quickly touch on, though, Kelvin, you are in Manitoba. Manitoba has an election coming up. I believe campaign kicks off today. What what do you think will be the biggest issues? Oh, there's going to be a whole. There's going to be a bunch of. It depends which party you're you're talking about. Uh, the NDP are going to focus on healthcare, and the uh, progressive conservatives, the incumbents, are going to focus. It seems like they're so focusing on crime and uh, the economy and, and that type of thing. One thing that we're not seeing a lot of discussion on is uh, climate. We've actually seen the NDP here in the province, uh, more left wing party for those aren't, who aren't familiar. Uh, speaking in terms that i think we would usually hear from conservative parties they're talking about uh, removing the the gas tax temporarily to help people with cost of living and that type of thing so it, it's quite interesting because the progressive conservatives have been quite struggling in the polls for the last number of years until earlier this year and now they're they're trending higher in the last few polls it's actually been quite close almost a tie between the uh, incumbent progressive conservatives and uh, the NDP, the challenging NDP. And so uh, I, I think there's actually some more national attention on this election this year than what we've seen in the past too, just because of some people seeing it as a proxy maybe for how things are going to play out nationally as well with the, the pressure that the liberals are, are feeling. And uh, there's some parallels, I guess, between the NDP here in Manitoba and, and federal liberal policy. So uh, that's, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. The campaign has essentially been underway for a few weeks or months even but today is the official start date because it's uh, in october 3rd election so i think they have to call it today mm-hmm. uh, which means that our job gets more difficult in manitoba because it they're already in, a- they've been in the blackout <laughs> period since early august already so that's what i mean it's kind of official it's kind of been under yeah. already uh, that's just summer holidays coming. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's maybe something that people don't realize. Uh, for those of us who work in media, when a government does go into official campaign mode or, or sometimes before, as you said, uh, it means that they basically stop any sort of interviews and those sorts of things. So uh, it can be challenging. Anyway, n- nobody wants to hear our sob stories coming. Um, okay. <laughs> that just about does it for us. Uh, this has been absolutely a wonderful time. Calvin, thank you so much for joining me on the show. We're going to wrap it up. And uh, I hand the show back over to Sean for tomorrow. So it's it's been a lot of fun. But thanks to New Farm uh, for sponsoring today's show. Head over to newfarm.ca with all your questions. Thank you to Tyler Gullen for joining me on the show today. And uh, heck, I will be back, though, on the Issues panel on Friday. And uh, I think Calvin will be, too. So we'll talk to you then. Cheers. Cheers.